Two Week Nose Podcast. Yo, what up, everyone? You are listening to the Two Week Notice Podcast. My name is Dana B. I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And today, we have a super fun episode for you. So we have Matt Carter of the band Emery. And Matt is awesome. He's so much fun, good energy. He tells great stories. And is he was just a wonderful guest. And what also makes this episode very special is that We have a world premiere happening right here on the Two Week Notice podcast. Yeah, baby. Come on. Yeah. So Emery has a new album coming out on September 16th. It's called Rub Some Dirt on It. Now, right here at the end of this episode, we are dropping the single, the first single. It's called Concussion. And this song is fucking sack. And you cannot hear this anywhere else. All right. Now, listen. I highly encourage you to not fast forward right now. (laughs) You have all the power in the world to do so, so I cannot stop you. But make sure that you listen to this conversation because Matt tells amazing stories. But yeah, you definitely want to listen all the way through so that you hear the new single called Concussion because this song is fucking sick. This song facts, all right? Now, before we get into all that, this is also a build-up to the Furnace Fest hype. We're just three weeks away, my friends. Furnace Fest. Birmingham, Alabama, this is the best three-day festival I've ever seen in my life as far as the lineup goes. Ah, yeah. Let me tell you about it. September 24th, 25th, and 26th. That is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The headliners are Taking Back Sunday, Under Oath, and Killswitch Engage. But in addition to that, there are 90 bands in total, and it's just so much more. So we have Anne Berlin, The Bled, Beloved, Better Off, As Cities Burn, Caven, Converge, I don't have my glasses on. Emery, Every Time I Die. (laughs) That'd be a cool band name. I don't have my glasses on. (laughs) Thursday, Walls of Jericho, From Autumn to Ashes, Every Time I Die. Did I say that already? Evergreen Terrace, Further Seems Forever, Mineral, Poison the Well, Scary Kids, Scaring Kids, Stretch Armstrong, Touche Amore, Andrew W.K., August Burns Red, Be Well, Boy Says Fire, Bury Your Fucking Dead, The Casket Lottery, Comeback Kid, Copeland, Face to Face, Darkest Hour, Hot Water Music, The Juliana Theory, Unearth, Turnstile, Be Well. Did I mention Piebald? The Get Up Kids? Wait, Piebald? Yeah, that's the band I tour with. Come down. That's good enough reason for you to come down to Birmingham, Alabama. Piebald plays Sunday the 26th. You definitely want to check us out. Emery's playing on Friday, so you really just want to go every single day. Now, here's the deal. Three-day tickets, long sold out. Single-day tickets are still available. That being said, Saturday sold out. There are only Friday and Sunday single-day tickets still available, which is still totally worth your while. That being said, I got an awesome way for you to get in on this festival all three days. We need volunteers, all right? 
So you put in a little bit of hard work in exchange for a really awesome time. That is the best way that you can get into this three-day festival and just be a part of everything. The link to be a volunteer for Furnace Fest is in the description of this podcast episode. All right, Furnace Fest, three weeks away. Cannot wait. Stoke level maximum. We do have one more sponsor, people. The two-week notice podcast is proudly brought to you by the Jack Rack people. Plug in, hang out. The JCM 800 Jack Rack is the best way to hang your keys, whether it's at home, in the studio, in the office, or anywhere else you need to keep your keys organized. Using real guitar inputs and fretting, along with a gold-brushed metal front panel, you'll never lose your keys again. Four keychains included. Dude, I have one of these hanging up right next to my front door right now, and I don't lose my keys anymore. Honestly. And I, I'm a scatterbrain motherfucker, so I don't know. I'm sure some of you are too, and I'll tell you, man. Not only does it look super radical, but, you know, it actually helps me not lose my fucking keys. I'm like, where are my keys? Oh, right there next to the door. Ding, 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 ding. And it took maybe five minutes to install. So definitely check that out at www.thejackrack.com. All right. Furnace Fest, baby. It's coming up quick. Matt Carter, thank you so much. This is a really fun episode. Today on the podcast, we have Matt Carter of the band Emery. What's up, Matt? What's going on, Dane? I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. Been a fan of your band for a long time, and we're adding to the Furnace Fest hype in addition to that. So this is a really exciting time. It's a very exciting time um, all around. And Furnace Fest has been, can you believe how dramatic it's been? Like the buildup, like to delay the year and still have everything be tense i mean i just can't wait to get there and feel like it's going to be so different than any other festival you know it's just going to be a weird weird thing but i think it's going to be super intense and i think we're going to see some super good performances there some inspired performances is my prediction i have the same prediction and i can't tell you how excited i am to the point where so i tour with the band piebald we'll be there on sunday and the saddest part for me it's not a bad problem to have, so I can't complain, but I can't be there all three days. But as a fan, I wish I could, but we're playing a show with Thursday in Pensacola on Saturday night, and we're doing like a headlining thing in Orlando. So unfortunately, like, I, what day are you guys playing? We're Friday night, so you're going to miss it. Sadly, yes. We're playing Thursday and Friday night because we have a club show Thursday night for a pre-party, and then we have a Friday night all at the fest, so. I'm leaving on Sunday sometimes. So I may miss Piebald, which is really bad because I've never seen Piebald. I've only seen him play acoustic uh, at South by Southwest. And I love Piebald, but have never gotten to see them, you know, play live. So. Oh, wow, man. They're, they're also my favorite band. Yeah. Well, the time that I fell in love with them is the, was the week we were recording our first record, the week's in, we were in Kansas and Toby had that record. 
and he kept playing it all that week. And I just, it was the, Hey, you're part of it. It was this that right song. I was like, Oh Behind my me. gosh. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and Hey, you're part of it was like our thing. We kept saying the whole week we're in the studio. It was like right when we all got into that song. And then, um, you know, I heard the story that he was a teacher and the whole thing about the van and just all that stuff that's tied into what pie ball was. I just, and the, 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 Really, what I like about it is I cannot ever get over how music can be spun and silly and powerful and serious at the same time. I just can't believe that as a music writer that people can do stuff that I would feel silly or embarrassed about, but yet this is not that way. So it's even more powerful. And that, to me, that is uh, B-52s, uh, that might be Giants. Uh, Pieball, Reggie in the Full Effect. I just, it is absolutely the next level to me. It's better happy without it being cheesy. I can't, just can't believe it. That's uh, really nice. I'll definitely pass those words on to the boys. Yeah, please and do. It, it definitely, it goes to a lot of it's Travis's lyrics. He writes mm -hmm. insane lyrics. I don't know how he does it. And, and, and it's just all four of those guys are just, I don't know. They're just fun dudes, but yeah, it's great stuff. But anyway, so Furnace Fest, we might, I mean, we're already on the topic. Let's just, go at it coming out the gate here uh just the most insane festival i've ever seen how old are you matt i am 42 42 i'm a little bit younger i'm 35 but so but I, for me if i were to come up with one festival and just put all these bands together that i want to see uh, this is pretty pretty damn close to it man yeah, it's a it's a perfect storm of stuff, because, I mean, you could say there's tons of good festivals and you could say Warp Tour or something like that. But th this is um, this is different than that Cornerstone, you could say. But there's so many more bands here that would never be at Cornerstone that you can't really even compare it in that way. Um, but it's it's such a uh, it's not I don't know how they all all the bands tie together, but it really all makes a lot of sense when you I mean, it really hits. Uh, it's a really good overlap of stuff. I, I don't really know what the lines are, are that you could draw around it, but I love them. Dude, That I couldn't have said that better myself because I don't know exactly what it is either because like Piebald has his complete opposite of Barrier Dead. Yeah. But I love both those bands and a lot of people do too. Or Emery or in, versus, I don't know, Unearth or Poison the Well. Like, but but they, we all somehow tie together. Yeah, yeah, this, the, the values are the same. And when the scene started, um, and it depends on how you define scene or whatever, but I mean, the indie music scene that is not like mainstream and or whatever that figured out its own way from in the DIY way and then became big out of the punk or whatever, hardcore and all that. The hallmark of it was early on, late 90s, early 2000s, was all these people we're putting into it and it wasn't commercial yet but yet everybody was investing and so you had this effect of these scenes popping out of these different regions where people were putting on shows and doing stuff for no money and doing it for the love of it and that made it so that all the bills and the people that were sharing resources that had those values were all over the map sound wise when they play together and that was the halt that was the thing that built the scene was that cross-pollination you know and so everybody that came up in those times before it became warped to a mainstreamy stuff that was hugely commercial and major labels trying to buy it and own it and productize it. Um, before that happened, it was all about how you'd have a ska band and a hardcore band on the same bill. And it made total sense. And it made everybody feel connected and good. And so that that's part of what's going on at Furnace Fest is it feels like that. 
cross pollination, man. Yeah, I like that. Uh, what band are you most excited to see? Well, I mean, um, you can name a couple. Well, I somebody asked me this the other day, and every time I look at the roster, I think of it, uh, I think of it differently. But um, I am really excited to see hopes fall really uh to be honest I, the hopes fall with the lineup they're gonna have even though ryan paris isn't gonna be there now i heard um i'm really excited to see hopes fall uh i think that uh oh my gosh i'm gonna look at i'm not gonna i don't want to even say so let me just i'm not good at typing sure. and talking but i want to look well let me ask you this if there's one forget if there's one band that you're like i really hope this band is not playing at the same time on another stage as me okay um well I, I got the list up now so i will be able to tell you who i really want to see but the ones that st are sticking out just as i'm scanning through the list of course i'm excited to see zayo i see them on uh friday night and i hope they're not on at the same time as us or anywhere near um and i don't know our set time or anything like that i'm excited to see um I think cave-in is going to be really cool and converge. I mean, that just, yeah. that's pretty much, that's very exciting to me. To, uh, but I think beloved is going to be something very, very special on Saturday night. Um, the, I mean, Jeremy Enoch at mineral. I mean, yeah. Well, how could you get better than, I don't know. Like I, I don't see how you could say it gets better than mineral on one hand. Um, I think living sacrifice is going to destroy that furnace fest. Um, yep. You know, there's a, I think comeback kid is going to destroy, oh, um, yeah. you know, I mean, there's just, it's going to be, it's going to be good. I mean, Juliana theory, I mean, they're going to be keyed up. I think for that, it's going to be big, you know? So this is a case in point. This is how I feel about the festival as a whole. And for selfish reasons, I almost wish piebald wasn't playing just so, <laughs> so I could see every band, but yeah. But I'm honored to be even a very small part of it. So, and I know that the rest of the guys are too. And I'm sh I, I'm sure you guys are. Too. Are you doing any shows on the way? No, we're just going and doing the warm up show Thursday night. Uh, we're coming in Wednesday, and and that's it. We're shooting some video stuff. Uh, might get some interviews while we're there and things like that. Saturday might capture some audio of some bands to play around with. That's the kind of stuff I've got in my mind. That sounds awesome. When's the last time you played a show? It's obviously been a while, right? We uh, played a show uh, in June. We played in July or, yeah, in July we played with Taking Back Sunday in Orlando at that Kraken uh, series they've been doing. And that was oh, wow. really, really cool. It just We got the offer. Um, we were just played before them. Uh, Evergreen Terrace played before us, and that was it. And it was just a great – I mean, it was just right after things opened up and stuff was rocking – you know, there for a little bit when everybody's starting to feel pretty good. And uh, we just went out there and did that. And it was just like, wow, it was 4,000 people there. And it was just, it was just easy. We went, did the weekend and did a rehearsal. Um, and it was, it was easy and fun. And it was, it was wonderful. So every, everything went smooth. Yeah. And we've done a few acoustic shows over the last year where we'll do, we, we've been doing that for a number of years where we'll do a songs and stories kind of thing where we'll go do 50 or 100. $50 tickets or something like that and play, um, in a, at a private place or a backyard or a community center or something where we can set it up nice. Sometimes we'll get a place with a bar, rent a bar and just make, we make it a comfortable atmosphere. People can sit down or sit outside or bring beer and do, you know, ticket our, the, our own events and do that. So we do that whenever we're feeling like 
just to get the juice to perform. And Toby and Devin and I do it. And it's just really musically satisfying because it's like, you know, piano and two guitars, basically. And it just you get to be really expressive. Like, and I love that. We enjoy doing that, too. That's really rad, man. Uh, where, where are you located right now? I'm in Seattle. I've been here for 20 years. And so, September 11th, uh, you know, wherever we are in the release of this episode right now. So it's, that's the day that we moved to Seattle, September 11th, 2001, 20 years ago. That's a perfect transition. So let's go back, Matt, because I want to hear about you, your upbringing. I know you folks are from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Is that correct? That's where we went to college. Yep. From that. From, okay. From right so there, went through. talk about your upbringing, you know, and just what you did as a kid, maybe you played sports, maybe you had hobbies, video games, whatever it was that kind of influenced you and, you know, how you eventually picked up a guitar. And I definitely want to lead into, I know that you guys, Emory, were driving to Seattle to move there on September 11th. So I want to get into that too. That's but right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead. That's crazy because it's like exactly half my life ago. I was 21. Or so, you know, I, I, in a year or two from now, I'll have been in Seattle and the Emory will be uh, over half my life, um, which is crazy. So but it's really the two halves of my life. But I grew up in South Carolina in the 80s and very rural South Carolina um, and was, uh, you know, kind of different than the other kids. I was what they would call hyper at the time. Um, they would call it a lot of things and it would get me in a lot of trouble. And, you know, I've never, I wasn't really able to interface super well with any authority or anybody like that. Um, and so that, that's really kind of the story of my childhood was, uh, I had some pretty eccentric parents and family, uh, that were, you know, lived up where we did in the, in the rural, rural area, but they were kind of different than most of the rural people, just an eccentric kind of family of, uh, I don't even know how to explain them, but, but so I just kind of had to find my way and dodge, uh, being diagnosed or medicated or not allowed to do this or taken out of that. I was kind of excluded from a lot of things basically because it just, people couldn't really hand <laughs> handle me is the way I look, look at it now. But I also, I'm sure was a really obnoxious kid is another way to say it. I can relate to that, dude. I'm a middle child and everything you just said, I can relate to. My two siblings were sent to one babysitter and I was sent to a separate one. That's how yeah. difficult I was. So I, I can, I can certainly relate. So yeah. Um, let me, let's talk about music. You know, what were people around you listening to? What, what inspired you? What do you remember as a kid? And, and when did you first uh, start, start playing uh, any instrument? I don't know if you played guitar first or, or. Yeah. Or they're what? all pretty easy moments for me to, to recount. Um, especially the older I get, it's like only the important stuff is in my memory now. And so when I look back, I was pretty easy. I remember my first musical experience was powerful would have been jumping on the bed with my little sister to Huey and Huey Lewis. Um, that that's some tape. We had a Huey Lewis tape and it just had this energy where you could dance to him. We just thought it was so fun um and you know whatever that was and then after that it was the beach boys i don't know why just like surfing usa sounded like the most badass toughest thing i'd ever heard when i heard it when i but i didn't think of it as anything other than neat or funny me and my friend would we just thought we liked the beach boys but it wasn't anything social or powerful or personal really it was just pretty surfacey um and then the next thing i remember is uh young mc it was like oh my gosh there's hip-hop but my dad found the young mc tape and he, he listened to it and 
and he threw it out the window of the car um, at some point because he just didn't like that trash, he said, or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> he just called him in a bad mood because I wasn't, like, not allowed to listen to stuff, really, but whatever, for whatever reason, he thought something on, the, on Young MC, uh, stone cold, cold bust and something, I don't know, but he, he threw it out the window. And then um, when Nirvana came out in 91, that was just a hundred percent all in. Like, then I understood what music was about or something like that. Like, cause there was hair metal and all that stuff was going on at my middle school and the older kids like Cinderella, and all this stuff that I just, I thought it was crazy and I didn't understand it. And they had weird hair and hairspray. I mean, it was so foreign to me, that glamminess of that. And it, it seemed like some middle school girls liked, I, I didn't, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, and then when I heard, uh, you know, Nevermind came out and, and stuff like that. And I was able to get access to that in, in South Carolina in 91, just that that was invading to the level where a kid could start hearing that. Um, and that was right when the CD, the random house, not, not the uh, Columbia house or BMG where you could or get your yeah. first tapes and CDs. And it was tapes. I got the Nirvana tape, um, in 91, you know, and that was really the first album that I like had and wanted and bought. I got it for a pre Christmas present or birthday present. Um, and then pretty soon we were that CDs right then. And my first CDs were, uh, nevermind, uh, Megadeth countdown to extinction, um red hot chili peppers and acdc live was the first four albums I, I really had um at that time and so then i just followed the alternative like whatever that was totally spoke to me because i you know i just you know we didn't have much music or any bands in our school or anything close to that um there just wasn't anything but there was by the time i was later on there was like uh so we found somebody that had a guitar some people had a guitar but they did play like capo capo strummy flip-flop birkenstock south carolina music if anybody had a guitar that's all they would have used it for and i hated that <laughs> you know i hated the hootie and the blowfish you know that's they're from south carolina and that's all the music that there was if you could find any music or anybody with a guitar that's what they'd play and so the first time i finally encountered a orange distortion boss pedal and plugged it in and somebody may played a power chord i just you know i would have been 16 years old the first time i heard that sound made um and uh, you know i was i was completely hooked at that point that's rad man so when you first got those cds off of bmg columbia house what were you like 10 11 12 at that point i i was in seventh grade yeah so yeah. you right around that age yeah when when did you pick up that guitar man um, my mom got me a guitar through somebody at work, had a guitar and got a new guitar and thought I might like it. Um, and I just, I, I had decided I wasn't going to try to play music. You know, I'd already decided it was too late for, I mean, at, you know, some people could play music, especially in the band and other things. There was, there's people that were playing music. And I remember some of my church played guitar when he was like eight and it, it was the guy was phenomenal. Like he really was good. And I remember hearing him play and thinking how hard that must've been and how much he must've had practice to get that good. And he was just some kid at my church. I said, like, well, there's just, I'm already so far behind. I could never, <laughs> I'll never be able to do any of that, but there's this guitar laying around the house and I just was playing with chord charts and then trying to just make those chord shapes, E minor and whatever. And, and I just, you know, did the chords in some order, E minor, C, G and D. And it sounded like, Polly from Nirvana on the Nirvana album, just the acoustic guitar. Polly I was like, holy. Uh, and all of a sudden I was like, I'm, I, I understand. 
I understand I could learn by ear and that those this was accessible because I, I just thought acoustic guitar, maybe I, I didn't even understand it can make the same sounds that Nirvana made, really. I don't know why I didn't understand it yet. I didn't understand how anything really worked, but to start unlocking those things and know that they had become accessible just really pulled me in. So the whole journey for me has always been like the, uh, the discovery of understanding you know demystifying things is kind of the is kind of my approach like it seems so out there and then all of a sudden you just stumble your way into a connection to being able to level up or understand something you didn't previously understand um and that's really my musical journey it's, it's different than the people that just were expressive or singing and always wanted to write and communicate it's not really that for me it's just really it, figuring it out, figuring stuff out like puzzles is just and music theory and i just i've just always been in love with that abstract pursuit of what's really going on here so it, you just had that moment where it clicked yeah yeah i just could tell i mean i couldn't do a lot i just could tell that i would be able to continue to grow by myself without having to take lessons or by the, the there's only a few notes and i'm starting to unlock how they could work together maybe this isn't so hard you know and then all you know songs you don't think you can play eventually they seem easy and that's just as infinite motivation you know to me that's definitely a breakthrough moment for mm -hmm. sure and so how old were you when you got that guitar in like 16 16 okay mm -hmm. cool now let me ask you this matt when's the first time you like played with someone else alongside you like mm -hmm. jamming jamming with people <laughs> okay so here's i was so obsessed with music but it was so inexpensive there's not internet and there's no bands remember so i was listening to music and obsessed with it and could not ask anybody find anybody to talk to about it just i couldn't you know th that was the situation so i was constantly thinking about it and i got a pair of drumsticks and i was learning all the nirvana drum parts but i don't i didn't know what drums or what or anything like that i just was learning the rhythms and kind of seeing it on tv a little bit or whatever just i really didn't know what i was doing and there was some jammy friends of mine um who would play jammy kind of uh, acoustic folky stuff so i made a drum set out of paper i mean i literally made it out of boxes and stuff to hit it and tried to make it sound kind of like drums it was boxes and pots and stuff. it wasn't even drums and i would play with them just to you know just do stuff like that and then i had a guitar at the time and they could kind of play and then i would play a little bit and they would let me play just jam with them but they weren't even particularly good or going anywhere or anything but you know they could jam and somebody might try to solo or something and i would maybe they let me play a couple of notes or play i they let me bang on boxes along with them of drums from there uh, the next step was i eventually got a drum set and then i could have somebody if somebody could learn how to play a nirvana song i could play the power chords and they could play that and then that's just that was just blowing my mind to hear seth who was emory's first drummer um you know he, we, he and i played on the tennis team at our high school and he said he could nice. play drums and we got there and he did you know he could do like he could do some of that stuff and he was pretty good not even great but he could do some of that stuff and i was actually learning songs and there was this one other guy who was a bass player and he was really really good and so all of a sudden we could start jamming and we were just doing Nirvana and Weezer and Green Day and just what that stuff that was coming through right at that time on MTV Buzz Clips and stuff like that. And we were able to kind of, you know, access that. And it's still way late compared to people who grew up around punk culture in Southern California or something. We were in the woods and being able to play Green Day Basket Case kind of and almost get through it. And we would start to do that on 
uh, eventually saved up and got a base amp so my other friend could come. So I was just started collecting people and gear one thing at a time. And then Friday nights after the football games, we'd come to my house and try to play cover songs. And then eventually somebody right, has an idea for a song. And it just was exact. I mean, just as plain as simple as you could imagine, very slow developing nowhere close to trying to play shows or anything like that. Um, and that eventually by the time we were nine to 18, and 19, maybe we're playing these bars where they make us like we can get a gig in downtown Greenville and we're playing mostly covers and some originals. And we have to play from 10 p.m. until 4, 2 a.m. Um, but it wasn't. And, you know, friends and family, your aunt would come or your girlfriend or something. And it was you were playing in a bar covers. Um, and that was the, that's all we knew that there could be shows. But some of the people that we played with couldn't go because they couldn't go. They weren't allowed to go to places where they served alcohol like their mom wouldn't let them. So, you know, that was the environment that that me and Devin and Seth Emery's drummer. I mean, that was the environment where we were writing our first music together and singing and playing at the Greer Family Festival and stuff like that. It was the same people. And that's just where we started. Do you remember what Weezer songs you were covering? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, all of them. I mean, it was everything. But um, the so it was Blue Album at the time. Yeah. So we play in the garage, in my garage. And. You know, it, it's a it's a really, really cool song. I mean, you yeah. eventually put together and kind of get at the solo or try to get distorted bass in that second verse and make some of those moments happen at your fingertips. And I'm, I don't I mean, it's super simple. I'm still exactly doing that, really exactly doing that today. But that but, you know, that was really what it was kind of kind of all about. And then when we we went to college, right, you know, right about that time continued to play and that's where we met toby uh from emory the other singer so devin and toby and i started to build a relationship there and toby was a really gifted songwriter couldn't play that well uh, and didn't have any experience or anything like that but he just had this this gift to to write these catchy lines and tone and find these tonalities and bizarre things on um that that devin and i were really at that point had gotten we'd been obsessed with music for four years playing in the garage and thinking about music theory and stuff like that. And we went to college then and started studying music theory in college. That's just, that's just what me and Devin were doing. Um, and then Toby came in and was just writing all this, uh, these things, but we're still just transitioning out of covers like, wow, he could really write. And, uh, so we were trying to record ourselves at that time. So we were four track task cams, And then we had this digital eight track recorder by then, um, and so one thing we did just in college, just goofing off is we recorded Pinkerton, um, the whole album, no we way. just recorded it and just got a different friend to sing on each track. So, and wow. I, I just, so that was my, that's how I started learning to record music. I was like, I'm gonna try and recreate all the sounds on this album, on this eight track. So just played around with it, figured out how to do it. And it was pretty sloppy, but you know, it was just how, what is that? And that we play, like I put the drum set on Devin did some of the drums. I did some of the drums and we just play along the recording. And then I try to match the bass tone and I try to match the guitar parts and the tone. And it was just, that's how, you know, just kept learning by doing that. That's amazing. And honestly, I could, I could spend a whole podcast talking just about Pinkerton. So yeah. <laughs> I, I do have to add, what's your favorite song off that album? Mine changes, but I'm going to go right now with Fallen for You. Yeah, that one is awesome. I mean, that is really, really an awesome song. It's the weirdest song, maybe. It's probably the least popular, least listened to song on the album, I bet. Um, maybe. So that's neat that's your favorite. But Aside from favorite, Butterfly, maybe, but yes. Yeah, but no, everybody loves Butterfly. You yeah, know, it's that before right. the last song is one that's just the real black sheep usually. Oh, but it's so good. Uh, um, but it is really good. But my favorite one's Across the Sea. 
Oh, another great one. Yeah, you can't beat that. Uh, the the baseline on Get You, amazing. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a popular one for bass players, and just the killer opener with Tired of Sex, man. Uh, you know the uh, drums coming back in at that halftime thing at the end is just yeah, it's it's yeah, that just blows everything. Just, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's the whole tone of the album to me. The Blue Album and Pinkerton are are super important to me like those albums yeah. are are everything to me in a lot of ways uh the good life yeah i mean oh my gosh and and so you were just uh you just recorded a podcast with somebody from osma oh you know i did on what i yes. consider to be a related note yes yes we just recorded last night although as far as the timing goes on releases that'll probably be out later but yeah and you know he co-wrote a bunch of songs with rivers i mean they, they had a a project called Weezma where Rivers and Daniel and a couple other people recorded demos, but he also, Daniel Brummel, he's the, the dude I spoke to. He plays bass in Ozma. He co-wrote a song that is on their album. It came out in, I think it was 2014. It's called everything will be all right in the end. It was one of their newer stuff, but he co-wrote a song with that was on there. Like, and just like you're saying, you and I, he idolized Weezer and then fast forward, yeah, he's in the studio with Rivers. I mean, that's that's incredible, right? It's 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 really crazy because that uh, we encountered Ozma in nineteen ninety, probably nine, and we were doing that Pinkerton. We were on that Pinkerton kick, doing that thing um, in college. Not quite got our shit together to be a good band at all yet, but we're just kind of rounding that corner. And huge Weezer fans, the Green Album comes out. There's Napster. And somehow we had gotten Ozma Game Over, that song, or an acoustic version of that song. And I don't know where it came from. I didn't know what it was. I didn't, I've never heard of that band. Couldn't find anything about it. And then when, um, when they came through on the Out Loud tour, the Green Album tour, it was Ozma and the Get Up Kids and Weezer. Yep. Um, and we went and saw that. And that was right as our, but we started to become a band right about that. Time. Just had discovered indie music. So we just came from grunge and almost were stuck in a new metal trap for a while until we actually found underground music when we were about 20 years old. I mean, before we even knew about punk or indie and any of that stuff. So all of a sudden we discovered that world and was right up at that crossover. And we went to Arena and saw, saw Ozma there. And just it was so super inspiring. I mean, to, to us. I mean, and, and so to then continue on from there, we moved, wound up then later, we saw Ozma when we were a band in Seattle and gave him our first demo and saw nice. you know, that, that kind of thing. And to be at all, I, I mean, I feel that there's some bands that are in the lineage of that Pinkerton. Like it's a lot of bands that, that carry some of that. And, you know, I think that's, that's part of our, you know, Ozma was like, people say it's like a Weezer copy or something, but nope. there was this whole thing about that. There's this whole side of Weezer that Weezer never explored that left it open for so many other bands to take a stab at. So I like to think that Osmo was in one of those bands and we're one of those bands, you know, we take stabs at things that Weezer could do, but doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was well said. I feel to me, I think Osmo, I feel like they're like the secret little club because there's so many people who don't talk about them or don't know them. And, I don't understand why Unbelievable. Things, things just, you know, play out the way they do, but they're very unique. And, and actually, you know what, you and Daniel are very similar. Like maybe, maybe it's just cause it's on my mind. Cause I just spoke with him last night, but you're talking about studying like music theory and stuff. And you said you went to college for it. Mm -hmm. Cause uh, Daniel 
he recently a few years ago got his master's in like you know uh, music composition so oh so, that's what i was gonna say it's so yeah. well composed well i mean it's just because it's like a band i don't even know why it's so you would think if a band was trying to sound like weezer which i'm not accusing them of i'm just saying it almost seems like it would be too simple except for when you listen to Ozma, the detail and intention at every layer of composition is unbelievable like every yeah. It's it's a you can um, as a arranger or composer, it's just it's just very clear the the level of things that are going on there that they're doing on purpose that they know are odd or different or weird or unique or have a very consistent flavor and it's it's clearly really intentional on a lot of layers. So, you know, I'd make it makes perfect sense that he would have to be a music theory kind of guy for some of the things that they do. It's got a classical edge hidden in there basically yeah you said it better than i could i just feel like maybe they never got their due i don't know maybe it's just the, my crew of people but i just don't know many people who know them and i, I yeah they're they're wonderful but. and their dual vocals is amazing like they yeah. sound they both sound so great and can interchange and and, and do that interplay so I, I love that too i i went on that same tour a little bit later the second run of that tour was weezer saves the day in osba Oh, wow. I, I caught that in Boston. And that was my first, again, like I said, I'm a little younger, but that was my first like big concert. I've been going to local VFW hall type, you know, smaller shows and stuff, but that was my first real big one. That was the first time I saw Saves the Day. That was the first time I saw Ozma. And yeah, it definitely changed the game for me because you mentioned rap earlier. I was pretty much just listening to rap until I discovered Weezer. Um, and cool. it just really kind of transformed <laughs> me. You but, know what else is right off that? Sorry, just stay on that. But um, the next time I saw Ozma in Seattle at Studio 7, it was with another extremely underrated band, maybe the most underrated band of all time, and a very similar vibe there, and that is Slow Reader. Do you know Slow Reader? I don't. Oh, my gosh. It was like some of the guys from the band The Impossibles, mm -hmm. um, uh, and they had this band Slow Reader. They put out one record, and you just – you got to check it out. It's just, it's, it, it's, a uh, another step far. It's not as up as it's sadder and slower, but it's got, it, it really fits in the, in the Osma camp and of kind of stuff. I think you'd really dig it. All right. I just wrote it down. Slow reader. I will definitely check that out. All right. Very cool. All right. So where are we on that little timeline there? Well, the next thing happens after that is we say we have to be in a real band. We the, Fuck this South Carolina shit. There's nothing hardly here. We're not getting anywhere. We can't. We're, we weren't that. The truth is, we weren't that good because there was stuff going on in North Carolina, uh, Tremont Music Venue, Hope's Fallen Beloved, and Code Seven, and uh, Ludacris, who would be Norma Jean. All those bands were around. Stretch Armstrong, and you know those bands were playing, and we started seeing them. You know, we we started understanding that this underground scene existed, but it was brand new to us. And we just didn't have any way to get into it or anything. And we were just kind of graduating college and didn't have stuff going on. And we had two bands. Devin and I had a band. Devin and Seth and I had a band. And then Toby had a band with his friend Joey. Um, and neither of our bands were very good. We played the amphitheater at a frat party or something. And we just said, you know what, though? Some of us are kind of really interested and really good and think maybe we could do better than this, right? And so we made a plan uh, to move away we, we went to dinner and said could we start one band like the three of y'all and the two of us and we make one band and we'll just move away we'll pick another city we'll leave work for our girlfriends we won't try to get jobs after college uh, we'll move away from our families and we'll just see if we could do it like 
does anybody have anything going on they want to do after college? We're like, no, let's just do it then. And so we said, and right at the table that day said, where, where should we go? Should we go to Jacksonville, Florida? I mean, I've heard they have stuff there. Um, cause I, but that doesn't seem that crazy. I mean, I can't go to New York. I mean, we'd have no business doing that. And LA sounded like the scariest thing imaginable. He said, what do you pay to play in LA at the whatever, like on the sun? I mean, we're not, not going to do that. And somebody said, we could go to Seattle and it's like, yeah okay yeah that's that'd be crazy that sounds cool it's you know grunge or whatever i mean seattle that's like that would be epic let's do it and so we you know that was it it was none of us ever been there or anything and we said okay everybody <laughs> i said everybody go save up money and um this summer so go everybody's gonna get whatever jobs we can we're gonna all save up our money and pull it together and we're gonna move out and we'll move out in the fall so we just go home and work for the summer, save up the money, and go start a band. So we said start. We started writing songs right then. We started practicing. We came up with the name Emory right right then and there that spring, and said we're going to move to Seattle in the fall and really start our band, kind of thing. So we were going to move like on the 14th or 15th, and then Toby something happened with Toby's living situation or something, and he's like, "Can we just leave earlier? Let's just go on the 11th." And so we just we got up the morning of September 11th, and you know, 2001. 2001 September yep. 11 we got up at six in the morning we're trying to leave super early so we had our families all in the yard and we hugged them and kissed and cried and had two or three cars we had three cars and a trailer um and we just drove away you know first thing just right at almost at sun up and then you stopped at Cracker Barrel in North Carolina and the lady came out the waitress and was all you know acting weird and said the told us hey, there's something been happened we've been attacked and we were like, what do you mean? Who's been attacked? She said that we've been, uh, New York City has been attacked by tourists. She said, tourists. <laughs> yeah, she said tourists. She didn't know the word terrorist. She didn't even understand what was happening. You know, it's a cracker right, right. barrel waitress in North Carolina. Aww. And we're like, where we really confused? We were confused. Like, I didn't know what she was talking about. And mm -hmm. and then she she came back um, a few minutes later and they said, uh, they figured out who did it. And then she said, it was the son of Bin Laden. <laughs> there's no way i've ever heard of osama bin laden she just says the the son of bin laden is who they're saying on the radio has attacked new york and you know we didn't we just it really didn't you know we were in the beginning of a seven day drive through the national parks and like sleeping in campgrounds and stuff like that at the gas station where you fill up you kind of we saw some of the footage at the of the whole thing and then we'd get back in the car and you'd listen to it on the radio but wow. we kind of missed the whole event you know, we were in a we were uh, in Montana and then outside in Wisconsin Dells at the campground and stuff like that that week. Pretty wild, man. And yeah. the timing, and, you, know, you know, we're coming up on 20. We're recording this on September 2nd, 2021. So coming up on 20 years, man. I mean, it's one of those things where yeah, I work with I work as a bartender and I'm one of the older ones there. Like I said, I'm 35. I, I have. There's like waitresses I work with. They were like born in like 2000 or they were born like right like after it. I'm like, so they have no idea, which is, I don't know if I, I'm just old or what, but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things you'll never forget. I mean, I was in high school and I, I remember I was in TV production class. So naturally we had a bunch of TVs on and th there was always the news on in the background, even during class. And so we kind of caught like, we caught it on TV before the second one before the second plane hit you know what i mean wow because it was it wow. was like it was like my first class of the day yeah it was yeah. pretty pretty fucking wild obviously and then the second one happened and i just remember i just remember they sent everybody home from school like the like and again this is you know in boston they were just like 
yeah, everybody can just go home now. Like this is not time to to be here. Like every yeah. so, like I'm getting goosebumps. Uh, you know, you know. And I just I remember going home. My mom had come home from work. She was sent home from work. Like everything just shut down. It was it, like weird. it was like. And I remember sitting on the couch with my mom, just staring at the TV. And uh, I remember later on in the day was when that it was like Building Seven or something. It was like that Marriott Hotel that just kind of randomly fell down. Later, I remember watching that and just. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up not to get too dark or too deep, but it's history. It's it's a major thing. And so that's crazy for, for you guys. So how did that impact your drive or or did it? I mean, obviously I mean, we, we were afraid we were going to just have to turn around and go home. I mean, we we didn't think we thought the whole pursuit to move to Seattle. We knew it was goofy and stupid idea. Like it didn't. Nobody thought it was a good idea, but we just wanted to try it. And so we were saying we'll go for six months. We can come back. It's not. You know, we could whack. I mean, we got let's just do. And so it wasn't that strong. We didn't have a deposit. We didn't have any plans when we got there. Not that we weren't meeting it. We didn't know where we were. Nothing. So it would have been very easy to just turn around 80 miles. And we thought about it. You know, we we might have done. I mean, it could have gone otherwise. And we could we just come home. Um, We we stopped in Indiana that night and we talking to our families on pay phones. And, you know, some of them were like, come home, you know. So but we didn't you know, want to do that, but we were scared to go to Chicago the next day. We were like, we're going to go to Chicago. We've never been to Chicago. It's going to be so freaky. It's going to be so crazy. And they were like, well, can't, can we go or will there be planes crashing into the buildings there? I mean, is it safe to drive near Chicago? That's the kind of thought process we were in. Like we didn't, Mm -hmm. I mean, we were very green. We hadn't been to cities and and to the West coast or anything like that. We, I mean, we hadn't really been to many cities um, or anything like that. And we were driving, so we just thought that was a big deal in itself, just be out adventuring. Absolutely. And not to mention it was whatever the biggest thing the world's ever seen yeah. in, in a lot of ways. So, so yeah. So what happened from there? You, you eventually made it to Seattle. Yeah. We got to Seattle a week later and we started staying in a the campground there. Um, I mean, we, our whole story is just is stupid like that. I mean, we are awesome at this point. We're 21 Toby's 24, 25 years old. Um, and we're just now beginning our journey as a punk band. So like, you know, Toby's already a grown up man. By the time we start playing shows with 16 year olds in the real Tacoma, uh, at a church in Tacoma basement, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and, and we're these five men that came from South Carolina that have already graduated college and have degrees in music that are old and big and large. And we were, uh, you know, large people like over six feet. Um, some of us were overweight at the time and, and just, you know, we were a weird oddity. We stayed at a campground. Uh, we had a, a racing, I know it sounds silly, but we had a racing trailer that you put a race car in, but we didn't have a race car. We just had the trailer and we lived it in it. And so we'd stay at the campground. We stayed in the campground when we got to Seattle, halfway between Seattle and Tacoma for two or three weeks until we finally found an apartment. Then we got a job at Guitar Center, and then we rented a storage unit and started practice, wired a electrical circuit from a storage unit and started and that made it our practice space. And we practice every night and go to Red Robin and work at Guitar Center. And Toby worked at an uh, antique store uh, and Devin worked at the mall at uh, the aqua massage kiosk in the mall where just where people come in and lay down in the water massager and that you know and then we'd practice music and started playing shows with 16 year old kids in on the west coast basically that's how our band started that's fucking rock and roll man (laughs) and the the bands were um it was good stuff happening though it was ska we were surprised because ska was happening still 
and we were thinking i mean we just weren't really thinking that we had this slow deftonesy tool like thing that we were kind of bringing and when we and and it was like younger kids playing ska and stuff and we're like okay so we're on you know we weren't quite a hardcore band or anything we we're just kind of whatever and we wound up pepping up our sound and seeing like what it's like when you get that energy like that energy going and you play a fast punk beat like oh that i see why that's fun it look at them look how fun that is and then all of a sudden it cl- kind of clicked and you know it kind of refined our sound and so that was right uh, acceptance was a local band kind of thing so uh, acceptance was selling tickets like actually as a local band and before they had anything really recorded but you, you know that was the people that we would knew from even church groups and stuff like we you know it was just that was the people that we were kind of the scene that we were in was was like that in seattle tacoma a place called club impact and there would eventually be national shows and stuff and but we would just do local shows around like that and some bands you know came out gatsby's american dream and acceptance were the bigger bands um that you, you couldn't get shows with but you really wish you could right that's rad going back to the campground real quick so you had the the, the race car trailer is that that's where you like so you had like drums and amps and guitars all in there is that and beds so this was like your apartment like did uh, I'm, I'm thinking well because because seattle with the weather right i mean september is starting to get cold yeah yeah it's oh. it was really weird we just we didn't we didn't have we had some money but we didn't know what area we were going to live in and we didn't have a plan or anything like that we just went there so the first thing we did was stay in the campground to learn the city and just think about what might would do and so we kept that trailer it was just a trailer my dad's business partner had and they let us take it to seattle because he used to do go-kart racing so he let us have that trailer it was a, a gift and it was great so we built beds in it put our gear in it and off we went and so we kept that um trailer and put it in storage and then for six months we rented an apartment and then when that time was up we were going to move up into the city and try to get plugged into the local scene or something like that but it wasn't really working we still weren't really doing that much um and we went and got that trailer out of storage and said uh you know we this to move our furniture into the house we were going to move into in seattle and me and toby were in there sweeping it out cleaning it out and he was like man i sure wish we were going on tour instead of moving into a new house with this trailer i was like me too maybe we let's just what if we just did that and i was like what do you mean he said what, what if we just move back in the trailer and go on the road and i said well no way the other guys will do it but i'll do it and went back yeah. in and convinced the other guys we never went and put the deposit on that house we loaded our stuff out of the our apartment and we just started driving down the west coast trying to play shows that's amazing dude and so we went we um, went to, um, we had a demo by then and to play our songs and stuff. So we started just driving to anywhere that there was shows or venues. And it was in the days where you could like, you, you know, we were using BYOFL and calling everybody and saying, we're so-and-so we had a song on this comp or we, we've done this and that. Can we open the show? Can we open that show? And just showing up places. And you, you would drive, a, it was just trying to have something to do but we didn't have any money or anything but we were living that trailer so it just kind of didn't matter we just could kind of scavenge through we got to somebody let us play at a record store uh in riverside and so that was our big gig is uh, it was i think it was sounds like records okay. and so there was the band was called keepsake uh was the band and they were playing at oh, chain yeah. reaction that night and they were playing an in-store at sounds like records in riverside and somehow the record store let us open 
for the in-store of a band that was playing Chain Reaction. There was no way we could play a Chain Reaction or anything, but we play, we got to go play at the in-store, and we met uh, uh, Sean and Armin from The Beautiful Mistake were there, um, you know? And, and so we knew about Militia Group and all this stuff, so we took our demo, and we would go visit labels, and we would just find their address and go there. So we went to Militia Group, knocked on the door, and bought them like a gift card, a bag of some food and some gift certificates and gave them our demo and said, can we set up and play for you? You know, maybe you can sign us. I said, we'll play right here. We have a, our gear in the trailer. Um, we'll set up and play in the parking lot or what, what, what can we do? And they just thought that was so crazy that we did that. Um, and they're like, I'm really sorry. And we're not signing any new bands right now. Um, we just signed a new band or because th this is really cool. And you guys are really, this is really neat what y'all are doing, but we just signed a band. Um, they're called Copeland. We think they're going to be really good. And that's about all we can oh, do right shit. now. They were like, dang, but we made a connection. They, you know, that was Craig at militia and, you know, eventually made a lot more connections, but that was always our reputation is just being just, we never, we didn't know how anything worked. We missed the whole scene. We never played any attention to the social parts of it or the coolness. And we would just do, you know, aggressive, obnoxious stuff toward our own goals. Um, not ask permission. You know, that's just what we, that we just do stuff, you know, do Dude. it our own weird way and, you know, makes impressions on people. People always think, but well, this is, this, these guys are different. There's weird. They don't really like what we do. Usually people are just like, well, that's weird, but it makes an impression. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I can relate to that more than you'll understand so i i'm the tour manager for piebald you know how i got that gig i showed up to their sound check in la with a cowbell and some beers that's it yeah. there was not a cowbell opening <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like i yes i, I just showed up man i i love I that attitude happen. i respect yeah. it when other people do it i try to recognize it when i see it or utilize it that kind of energy because it's just a self-directed you know self no permission but just it's a it's a pure thing when you see it like you know when somebody's doing something like for selfish gain and it's pushy like that's nobody likes that but when somebody has an intense interest and you know it's a genuine interest even if it's a little bit pushy that's okay mm -hmm. that's okay i mean you know it it puts you at vulnerable of being called a dork or something or idiot oh, yeah. or loser but if you can just get over that people tend to appreciate people that have with enthusiasm that believe what they're doing you know nobody was ever going to give me anything you know and I, I know that I, I you know I, I know i'm obnoxious and i don't understand a lot of what you're supposed to be like i just don't it's, you know it's over my head or i'm not i socially don't know how to read what the hell is going on uh, okay but you know so nobody's going to, I don't have the manners. My grandma was always disappointed that I couldn't develop manners. I, I just can't. So uh -huh. nobody's going to give me anything or identify me. You know, I'm not going to have a boss or get hired or I wouldn't, I just, it's just not me. So I have to make it happen. I've always known. I mean, it's, I've always known that anything's going to happen to me. I have to make it happen. Of course. I never thought otherwise. Um, and so I've, I have lots of stories of, of, of stuff like that but that's um that's been the the theme kind of and not just me but i mean i'm paired with toby who's just the same way or crazier so that's what's <laughs> been really you know the wild part is that when you get somebody and the band is like that and all bands are like that where you get somebody and it's this thing where somebody will say uh, it's like a a day or like i'll do this 
And then if everybody else says, I will, if nobody won't do it, if you can't find the scared person or the timid person, you're just going to do it. If somebody says, I'll do something crazy, but I don't think I'll have to do it because the other guys won't. And then you go all the way around the circle and everybody goes, I'm in, I'm in Then You have to do it then, whatever it is. You know, I, lo I love that about bands and groups, you know, collaborating and operating together with a shared objective. It's, it's hilarious. You know, it's fun. That's a beautiful thing. Let me ask you this, dude. So what was the first show? You know, uh, maybe it was on that tour you were talking about where you kind of just left and did it, or maybe it was later on, or maybe there were a couple moments like this or some shows where you were just like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm, I'm playing with my idols right now or something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, we've had plenty of big shows that are way, you know, world beaters. Like you couldn't, you never would think you could never imagine you would, you know, have the opportunities that you do, but the earlier ones are way more powerful. And that's a, something sad about that. But, you know, the first time that we played locally and drew 80 people, and the promoter told us that we drew 80 people said they came to see us in Tacoma, you know, when we'd been there for a year or whatever, or something like that happened. It's just, it's the validation is so high when you, when you know, there's no cheating to it. Like there's, there was no aunts and uncles, nobody, only people, we didn't know who the people were. So if anybody's our fan now here out of town or whatever those moments are, you can't like that. That's always feels like, you've really achieved something because um, you know it's real so we early on we'd play at some churches and stuff like that and it was just so horrible to play for a youth group where they mosh or something but they don't even know your music or care it's just entertainment they're just acting goofy and they have some clowns up there playing heavy silly music I, you know that's such a terrible feeling and then they pay you and give you a hotel and the green room's nice and it's like well this isn't re it's this is not real though so I don't feel good. And so, you know, we, we had some tours like that early. Our first tours were those offers and we just went home halfway through because that was not the magic. The magic was, you know, when you get validated because not because of who you are or any other thing, but just when there's undeniable, whatever. So those moments where you first draw the first time you have a record out and hear people singing it back to you as if it's meaningful to them. And that happened in Fort Lauderdale on the first night of the tooth and nail tours, like our first national tour, um, when the week's end came out and it was the first night, the first show is our album had been out a week and there they are. And they were the opener first band lights go out. We start playing and they know the words and it's loud. They loudly were singing the words. And so that was a, like, that was really a, no expectation, like not even a possible expectation that that was going to, you thought, well, we were the openers the first night we've never even played in Florida or anything like that. So we were just thinking it's going to be playing to cricket. So it's going to be this really tough situation for us. And we had a real crowd singing our music back to us from then on, That's you know, and then of course that gets stale and, and pretty quick or whatever. But you know, when you, when you first realize that it's big and then first time you go to another country, you're like, well, and then it's like, what, wait a minute. So if I can go to another country, Mexico or Australia or whatever it is, and they know here, then it's like, I don't even know how to process that because there's tons of places we haven't been still that there's people that wish we'd come there. And that like the fact that it can be a global, we could be a very small global band is still a very big achievement to me. Can you talk about that? Maybe 
like the first time you traveled outside the country and played a show and i'd love to hear about australia mexico or you know and anywhere else well those are the two territories where we do really well that isn't the united states but uh you know it's not it, Mexico, big time. Emory is big. Mexico loves Emory. Texas loves Emory. Whatever that whole thing is, that South, Southeast Mexico, Southern California, for whatever all that is, we, nobody in Boston or the Northeast likes Emory. Not one person ever has in any way liked us in the Northeast. I do. But, um, <laughs> but everybody South and South of the border is an Emory fan, is what it feels like. When we, you go to Mexico, it's, it, it was really crazy. Uh, and Brazil, they are more appreciative to have musicians come there or they they treat you a little more like a god or something. Like it's a little weird. Like you go and there's a barricade and they'll reach out or they'll squeeze you or they just try to touch you or yell at you or like you have security or like they it, there's a larger discrepancy between fan and artist in the sense like, you know how you know, all the guys in Pie Bogs, you've been to a bunch of shows and you can just hang out and just be in the band with them because you, you know, you're right. pretty entitled in that way. Well, they're, they're feel very privileged to get, you know, there's some different dynamic that goes on than the entitled uh, American fans. And so it's weird because, um, you you know, it's something about that is weird, but you, you can feel that intensity of it, it's a, more of a worshipy thing. But I, there, but in Australia is not that way. Australia is more like, uh, I'm not saying they're entitled. I'm just using that as a sure. extre an extremity to, to, mm -hmm. to color it. But we, but they're a more wealthy country, and they can afford this. And they have, you know, they're in their nightclubs. They're 18 year olds drink, and they play screamo, and they have these big clubs for it and stuff like that in Australia. So it's a social phenomenon. And then they are all in bands and things like that there. And one time we were in Australia, and we had this gig, and it's the I think it's the weirdest gig, one of the weirdest gigs we ever played because it was in like an emo bar. And it was super self-aware, like almost ironic. And it felt like a bunch of rich, um, cause everything's more expensive there. It felt like a bunch of rich, uh, kids that like this kind of music and they, they party, you know, at 18 and they just like, were able to afford to have us play at the background of their party is almost the, what it felt. Does that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it felt like, yeah. like at, in a movie where you get the band to play, but it's really about the party. And it's right. like we could be we were they were able to afford us just to like be there and kind of play. But they weren't hardly paying attention. It was more of a dance club. And they had the novelty of American screamo band that they could afford. And, never, and they knew us and stuff. But, you know, <laughs> almost like a, like playing a wedding or something like that. Yeah. 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 I mean, it wasn't bad oh. like or anything, but it was interesting just that it's like uh, more of a novelty. Yeah. Kind of a thing. That is interesting. Yeah. Like you said, it must've been somebody with money. Now I got to ask, like, I've never been to Australia. It's on my list. I'm going to get there one day, but the well, one thing that freaks me out is like, you know, I don't know, like big bugs, the size of your head or something like that. You know, you ever come across like some, I don't know, some big spider or something like that. No, we didn't. I mean, you went to the nature preserve and did a couple of things, but you know, it's pretty urban when you're there and you tour there and you fly city to city. So you're in the nice airport on the nice airline and you go to the big hotel and you come and it's, and that's, what's really fun about it um, is the way to travel like that. And you're in the airports and stuff every day. Uh, but another one of those uh, best show moments ever was there. We went with, 
uh, story of the year and flogging Molly to Australia the first time we went. And cool story of the year somehow had blown up over there. I mean, like way blown up, like way proportionally bigger than here. So the the we played a show with Sydney in Sydney within and it was this indoor show of five thousand people. I still don't really have a category for what that felt like because it didn't feel normal it felt like i couldn't make enough noise for five thousand people in one room i felt <laughs> you know but it was it was really the energy and the way that feels is so um neat but it's it, it was it, it's hard it's like you know how a small club feels power you can feel powerful in a small club you're like trying to strum hard enough for five thousand people it just felt so hard to me it was like i was swimming underwater or something but it was really it, that was really really good and to be with uh flogging molly on that um every day and hanging out in the airports every morning drinking guinness um you know they we were kind of a newer band and they obviously have been around a long time and know what they're doing and we got along like you like you wouldn't believe i mean it was like very we got along extremely well extremely fast it was it was great that's cool. And those three bands are all so different, mm-hmm. but what a fun show. That sounds awesome, man. Yeah. So there's some pretty, those are some highlights, you know, coming from, you know, where we came from to get to that. I mean, it was, and it's been a long, we've had a long career too. So we've had plenty of time to stack up, you know, interesting moments, you know, over the what, years, but. What I love about your band and the backstory you just told just really adds to that. Just that that just constant hustle, that constant grind, that work ethic, the effort is you guys have n- never stopped. Like you, you put out, I got your timeline here. I mean, you put out something every year or every other year and you have never stopped. Yeah. Well, I would. Well, that's why, that's why I love it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I mean, I don't just, see the appeal in stopping personally. I, I don't get it. But that's what I love. Cause a lot of bands dude. what, for one reason or another, you know, people, maybe there's one person in the band, they were all best friends growing up. And one person in the band just, eh, they want to just, you know, part ways and just don't want to do it anymore. I mean, it's not easy. Nothing's easy. So, and sometimes that'll be the breakup of the band or, you know, a, a million things can happen. There's a million reasons, but all these bands took breaks and hiatus or broke up and got back together, you know, final tour, farewell show, whatever you, you guys just, have just kept doing it and doing it and that's i just think that's rad man yeah i mean there's been some downs and ups really but not really it's just been exploring different things i mean when the industry kind of tanked in 2009 we were able to ride through that reasonably well um we were in a pretty overall good place uh for some reason we were able to just continue without a plan for a while and then we found you know then it it got more and more difficult, but we were always able to headline. That was never a problem. Whenever we wanted a headline, we were always been able to sell tickets. We just had a really good effect of brothers and sisters and youth leaders that showed it to their kids. And like, we've had it, we've been able to make a generational transition pretty um, steadily to be able to at least headline, but there hadn't been much other opportunity or growth in a lot of years. And it's part of that time we found podcasting and stuff. So that's just like, you know, you keep, it's the same idea. It's just raw, informal, make it happen. No rules. It's new. And so we've just been able to build community and keep that same energy and directed at different stuff. I mean, and 
we're not we don't do it the normal way but at, at its core toby and i are just entertainers and we're just always trying to get attention and goof around or do something or make something happen so there's always something to do there's always some somebody to bother or something outrageous to say or some something something you can do a different way and make you know i don't know it's just that kind of experimentation on the world um is the is the motto or the you know motivation well i i admire that very much respect for that and yeah you had the podcast break it down with matt cotter and uh, also shout out to the uh, matt and toby was like a side thing and i love that music really really rad i think that was 2011 when you started that mm -hmm. yep. yeah we so, tried a million things i mean a lot most yeah. of them work but the stuff that works has been great hey <laughs> all right dude proudest moment of your musical career uh i mean i won't be able to avoid using this opportunity to talk about what we're doing now um but the thing that we've done recently is my most proudest moment for two reasons, but we recorded our new album live and on video. Um, we did it in 115 minutes is how long it took us to make the album. And um, it's basically a live album and then post-production on it. And I, uh, on that project, produced it. I produced that. I produced many of our records, not all of them, but many of them I produced. And, this one I was able to do from this more of an orchestrator, like do a lot less controlling and a lot more developing the other people and design the environment and this way that we're, this approach we're taking to making an album. Um, and I even removed myself from guitar and was able to play piano on at least half or more of the album. I'm playing piano, not guitar. Um, and so to, to be able to, pull that off and to have that happen and for the band to actually be doing almost everything without without me is kind of the you know I, I try to do I'm the extra person in the band who's like the band leader is like like almost if I could be Count Basie with his orchestra is kind of what I want that is kind of the way I think of it to orchestrate and arrange and so this worked so well and I felt that I had that fluid control and enjoyed the moment very well um and it was all fun and it's all captured in a special you know moment and so that's a crowning jewel to me to be able to do the things that used to take infinite amount of time and to be able to do it for 20 years until we're good enough to do it for real basically so just now good enough to really play good for real all together you know, it's kind of the, where we've arrived now. And that feels, it feels very like a new, a new place to be. So it's now it's almost like this thing where uh, I feel like it's being present and uh, almost improvisational, like uh, the things that can only happen in the moment is the kind of stuff that uh, we look for now. And, it, and that's been really special to be able to achieve. Like I still can't improvise jazz music or something. I wish I could. I still can't do that but this is kind of my expression of that. That's cool, man. And a, a perfect timing because I had a fan question from the Furnace Fest Facebook group. It's from uh, Damon Malvano. And it's, it's a multi-part question, but it's related to, to the live thing. So he wants to know how you'd rate that experience recording the, the new album, like the live thing. And then is it something that you would recommend other bands try? And what are some things that you would maybe do differently, if anything? Well, I consider myself an evangelist for this medium. Um, we consider ourselves now a digital first band. We will play physical shows, of course, 
but our best efforts go into making these digital experiences. They can include real people in physical locations too, but we're making this, uh, we're, we're making experiences that can be global and accessible. You know, when you start doing these pandemic concerts and virtual streams that are, some of them aren't very good. Um, but there's been some bands that have done it so well that there is another whole level of medium to explore in video albums and video music and live. There's the whole territory there to be explored and it crosses over with theater and Broadway at some point. It's like, you know, there's, it's, it's the, whatever the Broadway equivalent is instead of a TV show, there's more to do in music and visual and, and, and performance in that way, especially as the technologies emerge to go to VR. So that's what I'm interested in. That's where I'm headed. Uh, but some other bands have done this and I, I feel that the trend will catch on, but I, I really hope more bands will do it because there's so, if a band is good enough to do it and a lot of bands aren't really just aren't, wouldn't expose themselves in that w way. But the, but if, more bands will do that. They'll inspire other bands. Uh, King's Kaleidoscope did some amazing ones that influenced me. Um, I kind of helped with them. Uh, Zayo just did one, and it's unbelievable. Uh, they, did a, they, it's, they didn't do a new album, but they did a special uh, with a live recording and that was captured like that, and it is very good. It is very, very good if you're a Zayo fan. And I was texting with Scott about it. He said that, uh, you know, he was inspired by some of the ones that we'd been doing and was following that model and said that they would consider doing an album in that format as well because he now he's experienced the same thing we have where you put everything into that creating that and doing that. It's addictive. It, it's, it's more fun than anything to create that experience where you have to do your best when it with it all on the line. That's what feels so good musically if you can do that. And Zayo can do it. I mean, it they're unbelievable. And so if if that raises the bar and more bands can like get into that, that's what I'm you know that's kind of what I'm hoping happens. Because of course you can develop a show like that and then take it on the road. You know, like that's the same performance that you could tour on, but it's like more like you build a Broadway show and then go it travels or something. That's a great answer. Damon, thank you for that question. All right, Matt, I got one more question. Then we'll plug some stuff and close it out. If you could give advice to a younger version of yourself, right? You've been a band for 20 years now. Give advice to a younger version of yourself or an up-and-coming band. What, what would you say? Okay. This question is really hard because I, I feel strongly that the answer is there's no way I would listen to myself if I told myself anything. I mean, it, that can't be true, but the, the strategy of how to talk to your former self is, I think, is more complicated than you'd think, because I don't think you'd automatically trust that motherfucker from the future, even if it was you. <laughs> I really don't think you would. I think you, when you're younger or unaware of something, you really have blinders on a lot of times necessarily and you figure out some way to not listen. And so there's something about life. There was the process of making the mistakes is all there is or something. Like, I don't, I don't mean to be pessimistic like that, but it's like you have to make all the mistakes somehow feels more like the way that life is to me. And I just can't possibly imagine taking my own advice or even if I could say it, I don't think I'd better live it is what I'm afraid of. Like, even if I believe that guy from the future and he said, uh, like, okay, here's a practical example. At that time, when I was trying to get better and do stuff or learn how to record, I would have thought the gear matters more than it does, the recording stuff. Like, 
and if I went back and told myself the gear doesn't matter, you just need to be a better guitar player. I, I mean, I don't think I could have been, that wouldn't have been actionable to me. So it, it like the things that you could even say is, Oh, you need to have a less of a temper or you tell what you need to let go of the, like when these arguments happen, you need to let it go. Like that's the kind of stuff I'd tell myself. I just don't think I would have done, would have done altered. Anything I did. I can relate to that. You got to learn the hard way with the water thing. I'm afraid you do. I, I'm all about, I've always sought shortcuts and I still will continue to, but that's how I learned <laughs> that there are none. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that's an awesome answer. <laughs> all right, Matt, dude, this has been so awesome talking to you. What can we plug? Uh, you got the new album coming out. Yeah. It's Furnace called Rub Some Dirt on it. Um, is the new album. The, 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 basically it's a pre-order and the event, you get to see the making of the album, but the pre-order for the album, the vinyl, all that, it's all happens as a, attached to this live event. And it's at momenthouse.com forward slash Emory. Um, but that's, it's on the 16th. So if this isn't out by then or right by then, then that's fine. But if not, that album's still available to order. And if you join our member community, Emory land, then it, it'll be in there for them. And then there'll be a public release on Spotify. Um, you know, a final audio version that will go to spotify and that we don't even have a release date for that so we basically do all our stuff really we spend most of our efforts and career in uh directly with our community making products we have tons of unreleased uh music that we've never released it's only for you know people that are in emeryland basically so it's almost like a netflix like content house we have a bunch of original content that's in our library and our disc if you're in our discord and and, and do that stuff and sometimes we make some of that stuff public so this new album they'll get and have it for a while before it, it becomes public rub some dirt on it september 16th yep. this will be out before that and uh we're gonna try to play the song concussion sweet yeah can we yeah. do that yeah that'd be great all right you awesome can, you, can do, you can roll it absolutely all right then we're definitely gonna do that any other plugs brother there's a podcast called Labeled, Stories, Rumors, and Legends of Tooth and Nail Records. And I just have conversations with people from that whole scene and try to tell the story. And I, I'm really interested in the values of the scene and how it came to be and who paved what way and what are these special minds and groups and microcultures that are bands. You know, I'm fascinated by that whole terrain. So I do that podcast and there's some storytelling and uh, exploration of the characters from, from that scene. You know, label podcast labeled podcast that is definitely right up the same alley of the listeners here on the two week notice podcast so that's awesome definitely check that out thanks so much for your time dude yeah absolutely dane i really appreciate you reaching out i always enjoy getting to talk on a podcast that's not mine because it just it's a whole different feeling but i enjoy it so thank you All right, let's wrap this one up, baby. Come on, yes. Thank you so much, Matt Carter, and thank you all for listening. If this is your first time listening to the Two Week Notice podcast, I really appreciate it. means the world to me. And if this is your vibe, make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss a single episode because I promise you I got some really good episodes coming up. And definitely go and check that backlog because I've had some killer guests 
in the past. All right? If this is your vibe, make sure to hit subscribe. In addition to that, I must say, if you really want to help me and help the podcast move forward, the best thing that you can do, if you have an iPhone specifically, right? There's an iPhone app. It's called Podcasts. It's a little purple square. Click on that. Find my show, Two Week Notice Podcast. Scroll all the way down and give me a five-star written review. That is so helpful. And to encourage more people to do so, I do a giveaway every week. If I read your review on the podcast, guess what? You're the winner and you will win some two-week notice podcast swag. I got t-shirts, pins, and stickers. All right? Come out. And you're doing a nice thing. You're really helping me out. All right? So this week's winner is Miss Amy Ness. Five stars. So good. One charismatic host plus great guests from bands we all grew up loving equals one hell of a podcast. I always have a fun time listening and am left looking forward to the next episode. Very well done indeed. All right, Miss Amy Ness, thank you so much. That means so much to me. Hit me up on Instagram, send me a message, and I'll send you some two-week notice podcast swag. Thank you so much. And here's the deal. All the information to anything I've talked about is in the description of this podcast episode. You can find my Instagram handle. You can find information on the Jack Rack, which is the best way to hang your keys. You can find out how to be a Furnace Fest volunteer. You can even find the link to pre-order the new Emery album, which comes out on September 16th. It's called Rub Some Dirt On It. And now, for the first time in two-week notice podcast history, we have a world premiere. Baby, come on. Yes. So here is a song off that new album, Rub Some Dirt On It, which again premieres September 16th. Pre-order that shit now, all right? This song is called Concussion. Enjoy, because this song is sick. Until next time, I love you all. Three weeks till Furnace Fest. Peace.